Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 4th, 2018, and my guest is author and economist Ron Abramitsky of Stanford University. He studies economic history, immigration, and inequality. He is the author of The Mystery of the Kibbutz, Egalitarian Principles in a Capitalist World. Ron, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks a lot for having me, Russ. What is a kibbutz, uh, and why did you get interested in them enough to write a book on them? (laughs) That's a good question. So a a kibbutzim... Uh, which are plural of kibbutz, are communities in Israel that were based for many years on full equality in the distributions of incomes. Uh, and as such, they are puzzling for economic theory. They, they are based on full equality of incomes and uh, collective ownership of property, and yet they survived uh, for over uh, a century. Now, the, the first, you know, just a brief overview is that the first kibbutz was established in 1910 by a dozen of people from Eastern Europe, but the vast majority of kibbutzim were established in the 30s and 40s, just before the creation of the State of Israel. Uh, they first were established as communal farms, uh, but uh, in the 50s and 60s, when Israel went through industrialization process, kibbutzim participated in this process, and since then, they have a large industrial base uh, alongside agriculture. So today, there are like 120,000 people living in 268 kibbutzim, and they account for about two and a half percentage of the Jewish population of Israel. They vary in size from, say, like a uh, hundred to slightly over a thousand. The average size of a kibbutz is 440 members. Uh, which is about like 150 families or so. And so I got interested in them uh, from a very young age. So I myself did not grow up on a kibbutz, but uh, all my family, the the part of my mother's family, my mother's family did. So my grandparents uh, were among the founders of a kibbutz and my grandma lived there for 50 years. And then my mother grew up there and left. Her sister stayed. And then later on, my brother uh, uh, married a kibbutz member. And uh, as children, my brother and I loved to hang out on the kibbutz. It's a fabulous place. It's like this picturesque village, you know, with uh, small houses surrounded by green paths. And we we used to go play table tennis and soccer and football and like uh, uh, basketball. And uh, we used to go and eat in the communal dining hall with uh, the kibbutz members. And it was a great place. And our parents didn't have to worry about us because it's super safe and there is no pollution and no cars, and it was great. Uh, And as I grew a bit older, I became even more fascinated with kibbutzim, uh, because not just I enjoyed there so much, but but I thought that uh, this is the idea of splitting everything equally and have no poverty and no poor people is a very just way to, to construct society. Uh, but as the cliche goes, when I was a bit older, as, especially as I started to study economics at the Hebrew University, I became more skeptical. So as the cliche goes, if you're under 20 and you're not a socialist, you have no heart. But if you're over 20 and you're still a socialist, you have no brain. I started to be more skeptical. And so I remember one day in particular when I was having a discussion with my uncle and uh, he described one of the path-breaking innovations of the kibbutz. Uh, it's a very good irrigation factory system in Israel, a very successful uh, uh, factory. And I decided to provoke him. So I told him, Uri, you know, according to economic theory, uh, the kibbutz should not exist. Actually, the factory shouldn't be as good. <laughs> so, uh, you, know, why, you know, why would this, anybody work very hard if all they get is like an equal share of the total resources. I explained to him the brain drain problem that I learned in uh, university. And then I said, you know, and besides, Israel is the size of New Jersey. Why would any talented person ever stay in the kibbutz? Why wouldn't it be a great deal to move to Tel Aviv and earn a premium for your ability and efforts? Why would you stay and share your income with people who are less ambitious and talented than you? So I explained to him the brain drain problem. And then I told him, what about entry? I expect all the lazy people who can't make it outside to seek to enter a kibbutz because what a great deal it is to uh, 
enter a kibbutz where, and have other people subsidize your earnings. And so I explained to him the adverse selection problem. And then I continued with my annoying speech and told him that uh, I also worry about his kids a little bit because why they don't have any much incentives to study hard. Because why would you study hard if a high school dropout and a computer science engineer get paid exactly the same in the kibbutz? Why would you study hard at all? And so, uh, uh, and of course he got upset <laughs> and we started and we started to fight. And uh, he explained to me how, uh, you know, you economists are so cynical and, you know, all you can think about is the selfish person that only thinks about themselves, but everybody smart who's man, familiar, your uncle. He, is a, he is a very <laughs> smart man. He's and, he, and, and a big inspiration for writing that book, I should add. And he said, why would, you know, like uh, you are so cynical and uh, everybody that is familiar with the kibbutz knows that the founders of the kibbutz were anything but selfish people that cared only about uh, themselves. They actually, in fact, wanted to create a new human being, the, the opposite of the homo economicus that cares only about himself. And uh, they wanted to create, you know, they wanted people to care more about the collective than about themselves. And besides, if you're so smart, then how you know, how can you explain that the kibbutz survived so successfully for almost uh, a century? And he got me thinking, and uh, that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years, is like trying to answer that question. And it, it's a fascinating book, and it's a fantastic example of applied microeconomics. There's so many interesting um, intuitions in the book about incentives and uh, the the role that preferences play because incentives are not everything. Culture and and uh, other things do play a role in our decision making. And I think for readers who for listeners who don't know uh, much about kibbutzim, about the kibbutz, they sh you should give them an idea of what a radical uh, utopian vision it was. So not only is and I learned all this from your book as well as a little bit of personal experience. Um, having spent a summer at Kibbutz Rivivim in the Negev, oh, I think I've, I think I've mentioned this to listeners before. Yes. Uh, picking fruit and cleaning out uh, <laughs> irrigation lines with a pen, uh, squatting on the <laughs> ground every eighteen inches. Uh, they're just far enough apart so that if you crouch down to get one, you can't reach the next one. So you have to get up, crouch down <laughs> again. It's a fantastic yep. uh, motivator to actually stay in school uh, if you're not committed to the kibbutz. But the point is, is that. Not only is there egalitarian uh, total in the original early days of the kibbutz, total egalitarianism in terms of consumption. Uh, there's no money. Uh, there's the children are not raised with the parents. They they sleep separately, and parents see their children at uh, separate times. You have no property that is your own. Talk about some of those uh, those rules, uh, implicit and explicit, uh, that that made kibbutz, kibbutz life very different than say just communal living yeah that's a great question so by the way you're in good company because you know bernie sanders and uh, jerry seinfeld also spend some time on the kibbutz and they have uh, similar experiences to share like you do uh, so you're exactly right the, the this is not just like living in a neighborhood where people uh, a bunch of people decided to split things a bit more equally than than uh, otherwise, this is a radical experiment in the sense that it it was it started with people who came from Eastern Europe and they wanted to bring with them uh, some of the things they liked about socialism. You know, the, from each according to ability to each according to needs. Uh, they came to a, a to a country full of uncertainty and it made sense for them to uh, group together. They also had like strong, uh, not just strong socialist ideology, but also strong Zionist ideology. Uh, and the idea that uh, people can, uh, the Jews can always only be saved by working on the land uh, as opposed to learning Torah and uh, avoid the work like they often did in the diaspora. Uh, and they, but they, but they also wanted this to be voluntary. So they didn't want to force people to join there. And so the idea of voluntary socialism uh, and uh, at first they uh, set up these communes uh, and uh, as you said, it's based on full equality in the distribution of resources, no private property at all. So all communal, all property belongs to the commune. Uh, 
And as you said, for many years, it was a non-cash economy. So uh, equality was taken so seriously that, uh, you know, you would basically, they would be allocated things in kind. So there was, there would be like a clothing budget. And then there would be like a food, clothing, uh, travel. And, th- and then each person would get an equal amount of those. There would be, you can, you're not able to save anything. You cannot uh, uh, leave anything to your kids. If you leave, you can only take with you uh, your brain, but you cannot take with you your share uh, of the of the factory and 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 all, uh, and uh, they also, as you mentioned, uh, they had communal dining halls. So people did not eat in the you know in the comfort of their home, but they would eat their meals uh, together with uh, others in the uh, in the communal dining hall. Uh, they uh, they took equality so seriously that uh, they wanted to also uh, raise kids communally. And so the system uh, of uh, uh, special residences for kids uh, started around the 20s uh, with, uh, where kids lived outside of their parents' homes. They would only visit a couple of hours, maybe from four to six, uh, their parents, but otherwise they would live uh, together. There would be like a nanny that would take care of their needs and, uh, and uh, they would, uh, the idea was to... Uh, teach them uh, the ideals of equality and to make sure that uh, everybody gets the same opportunity, but at the same time follow a strict uh, co- you know, uh, pressure to conform and so on. And there is a big literature, by the way, this is a whole interesting issue. There is a big literature about these communal residences. At some point, all kibbutzim decided that they were not a good idea. And in the 80s, uh, uh, all kibbutzim eventually shifted away from this system. Uh, there is this literature about whether it was good for the kids and parents. We can talk about this if you're interested later. But uh, uh, Impossible first, to measure accurately. In, in, but, yeah. Impossible to measure accurately, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but but may, that, maybe maybe the insight from this literature is that it kind of depends on the kids. You know, if the kids, no uh, there are like the sensitive kids for whom this was not a great experience. There are those kids who loved the independence and like uh, those popular kids who loved living away from parents and do uh, and so on it's like but summer they, it's like summer camp from day one it's like summer <laughs> camp from day it's like, which it's is exactly, hell for some kids and glorious for others you know what you know what i think that's the best way to summarize it and i and then and then you know they had they did have tough early days but in the 70s the, the thing that is quite amazing is that you can imagine why maybe a dozen people creating one kibbutz and they have very radical uh, belief system can can survive but then by the think about this this you know by the 60s and 70s those are not you know they are really like uh, uh, villages that are surrounded by green paths and gardens and swimming pools and uh, and, uh, and and tennis courts and basketball courts and uh, and they are really like uh, they they are really uh, many of them are are, are quite successful uh, and so the the amazing thing is that uh, and kibbutzim, unlike many other communes in history, uh, they, they were never at the margin of society. They always influenced and were influenced by society as a whole. They always were perceived to be like uh, the the example of how a, a social, voluntary socialism can work and how you can then alongside contribute to the country. Uh, a lot of the, the borders of Israel to a large extent were based on where kibbutzim were located at the time the state was created. So this is like a, a, a radical experiment in many ways, but uh, one that was perceived to be one that was the, that lived very long. And that's why it's perceived to be one of the most uh, uh, important experiments in voluntary socialism. So one of my advisors in, in graduate school was George Stigler, and George Stigler was a, uh, he was a Smithian scholar. He was a scholar of Adam Smith, among many other things, and he particularly was a scholar of the Wealth of Nations part of Adam Smith and particularly uh, interested in the role, the power of self-interest and incentives. And I often wonder what George would have made of Wikipedia I think he would have been tempted to say, as you know, I have been guilty of this kind of crime in my intellectual crime in my past. Well, I'm sure it doesn't exist because without any incentives, if it exists, it's going to be horrible. And of course, it's not horrible; it's quite good. And the kibbutz lasted successfully as a as a social institution for multiple generations. Uh, and we're, we'll talk about how they maintained uh, how the rules that they they established helped maintain their survival for as long. As it as it did, but we should also mention that starting in the 80s and 90s, uh, some of those 
some of the more radical pieces of the kibbutz started to unravel. The first being the one you mentioned, uh, children were no longer uh, kept apart from their parents. But then, um, is it, I would say most, if I read your book correctly, of the kibbutzim have have gotten rid of of, of complete egalitarianism on, on income. And uh, now they're they're smaller and they've had trouble getting the second and third and fourth generations to stay on, you know, after, after they've seen Paris, how do you keep them down on the farm is the expression. And that's been a, a, the challenge for the kibbutz movement in Israel. Yes, that's, that's right. So starting the nineties, uh, many kibbutzim for the first time in their history started to shift away from equal sharing. Uh, some kibbutzim only had minor deviations from the equal sharing models, but many had uh, moved to market forces and now earnings uh, income is based on people's earnings. Uh, most kibbutz, the, only 20% of kibbutzim uh, maintain the egalitarian model. Uh, and so uh, that's right. Uh, if it followed, uh, yeah, it followed, I'm not sure if you want me to talk also more about uh, how it came about, but that's basically right what you're saying. It's, uh, they did shift away from equal sharing recently. And part of what I'm trying to do in the book is try to understand uh, why did they shift when they did? Why did some kibbutzim shift away from equal sharing and others did not? And then what are the consequences of the shift away from equal sharing? And that's all interesting, and it's maybe we'll talk about it. But I, I, I'm more fascinated by what I think motivated the book uh, from the beginning, which is – uh, that that it lasted as long as it did, and just to give one more piece of uh, the strangeness of these institutions, uh, talk about what would happen if you received a gift from an outside relative, or as happened in quite dramatic fashion, uh, the role of German reparations and how that was handled. Yes, so uh, if they took the, in early days, if you received a gift from an outside source, you know, and uh, then. They, uh, the kibbutz would, uh, would have you give the gift for the collective or uh, if the kibbutz had the resources, maybe they would even like buy, say you got a radio, maybe they would buy a radio for the entire kibbutz. Uh, and the, the, reparation, <laughs> the reparations are interesting. <laughs> it is fascinating. Uh, the reparations are, are interesting, uh, but maybe I sh- uh, the reparations are interesting because they kind of put, uh, at they had a, it was kind of a test for kibbutzim. And the reason is that uh, one of the problems, as I mentioned, was brain drain. Yes, so people that uh, the tendency of the more skilled people to leave the kibbutz, uh, and so uh, there were many of the kibbutz uh, members were survivor or Holocaust survival. And at some point in the 50s, Germany uh, paid reparations to Holocaust survivors, and many of them were in the kibbutz. Uh, and so now uh, they were paid for individuals, not for the entire kibbutzim. Uh, but uh, they they had to decide uh, whether they leave, they take the money and leave, or whether they stay. And so uh, and and so this was it, it is. And so like uh, uh, many people, and so there is no real amazing data on this that I can tell you exact numbers here. But uh, the story is basically that uh, some people left, uh, but many people. Uh, arranged with the kibbutz to give them like a one-time gift or to ensure that their kid will go to university, but otherwise stayed uh, in the kibbutz. Uh, I think more generally for your question uh, about uh, how they, uh, uh, the fascinating question of how they survived for so long, uh, I would say there are a few ingredients for this. One is that, uh, and you know, I have in the book this uh, imagined conversation between uh, what if the founders of the kibbutz uh, went to an economist and they asked them, you know, what do you think? Uh, I want to have, I want to have full equality. Why? Because I think it's the right way to go. I'm socialist. I think it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, the, I'm altruistic. I want to create a new human being. What do you think about it? And uh, if, and and if the economist had the foresight of what economics knows today, uh, I think that what they would tell them is uh, uh, to basically create the kibbutz in exactly the way they ended up creating it, or like very close to how they ended up creating it. And I can, I can elaborate more on this if you're yeah, interested. Yeah, go ahead. And, and so I think the first, thing, the first thing the economist would say is, well, there are also beyond all these non-economic reasons that you give me for why it makes sense for you to create a kibbutz. I think that uh, there is also economic sense to create a kibbutz in the sense that uh, a kibbutz provides you 
with very valuable insurance. So it's a safety net insurance against any source of idiosyncratic shocks to your income. So in the kibbutz, you know that uh, uh, you and your family will always be getting paid the same, and especially in a world of uh, underdeveloped insurance markets in Israel, Palestine, Israel. At the time, this is a very attractive form of insurance. Uh, and of course, by the way, it remains a good insurance even when insurance markets are developed because, uh, for example, there is no insurance against human capital. So, you know, if, for example, economics become obsolete, Russ, then you and I oh. today are in trouble. Uh, but in the kibbutz, people work in various different occupations and they know that even if uh, there is less demand for their occupations, there are people working in other occupations and there is like full insurance even against shocks to your uh, human capital. But then, of course, he would point out that uh, there are all these problems, free riding and brain drain and adverse selection and lack of, lack of incentives. And then he would say, well, the first thing that will be great for you is if you can make sure that people are really idealistic. So like, because, you know, idealistic people, whether it's social socialists or just people who are very committed to the idea of a kibbutz, people like that, they don't shirk, they don't free ride, they don't leave, they just stay and work very hard. So like, make sure that you have an education system that convince the later generations that this is great and make sure you have idealistic people and so on. But do not just trust on the human nature of people to be like idealistic because as typically happens, second and third generations will probably become less idealistic because uh, for them, living in a kibbutz is a default rather than a choice like it was for the founders of kibbutzim. And so if you want to design a system that will make sure that they are uh, responding to, that uh, they respond well to incentives, well, let's start with the free rider problem. So we know that uh, there is not much motivation for people to work hard if they don't get the full monetary returns to their education. But how about social sanctions and peer pressure? And, the, and everybody familiar with the kibbutz knows that, uh, you know, they wouldn't sit next to you in the dining hall if you're perceived to be shirking. Uh, you, 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 they can make your life sufficiently miserable that you might leave. And so, but for that to work well, you kind of need to make sure that the communities are small enough because social sanction, peer pressure are more effective in small communities. You have to make sure that uh, there is not much privacy. So everybody knows the coming and going of people. So, you know, for example, you ask my mom, to, until this day, if you ask my mom, hey, mom, where are you going? You know what her answer is? She says, you know, I stopped answering this question 45 years ago when I left the kibbutz. Don't ask me where I, I want to be. My, I don't need to report to you what I'm doing. But in the kibbutz, if you want the social sanctions to be uh, effective, you need to make sure that uh, uh, people have no, not much privacy and that social sanctions are effective. Everybody knows everybody. They repeatedly interact with one another. They go to the same school. You, they work in the same place. They live and so on. You also want to have social rewards. So rather than having lead, one leader that will lead the kibbutz forever, they have rotation in leadership. And they, they rotate who is the secretary, the uh, kibbutz manager, the farm manager, to make sure that they reward people who are perceived to be bigger contributors to the uh, to the community. And so that's kind of uh, free riding. What about uh, uh, brain drain? Well, you know, how about we make exit costly? So for example, make if all property belongs to the collective and there is no pri private property, that means that, uh, it's very, that it's very hard to live because once you leave, you can only take with you your brain, but you can take with you your share of the kibbutz. And so lack of private property uh, made it more costly for people to move away from the kibbutz. And then similarly, uh, letting you study agronomy rather than law, like uh, kibbutz-specific human capital, means that uh, uh, you are, your skills are more valuable within the kibbutz than outside the kibbutz. So ways like that and other things like this too. You can only enjoy the swimming pool and the local public goods if you stay in the kibbutz, but if you leave, you, you can't. And so the idea of... Uh, uh, making exit costly to deal with the brain drain problem. And of course, they are well aware of the issue of adverse selection. So the, they are, you know, the kibbutz knows that if they open their gates to everybody, they will get disproportionately people who didn't make it outside and they are well aware of it. So they have tough screening process if you want to join. Uh, they would not let you in if you can't uh, get a job in the kibbutz, if you can't earn your own living, if you can be a contributor, even if they let you in, they would have a probation period of a year or so 
uh, and only at the end they will decide whether you're a good fit for the kibbutz uh, and so on. So things like that I can talk more about. But I, uh, That's fantastic. Uh, we, we've talked on here, I think, uh, I think it's a Walter Williams quote. Maybe it's maybe it's somebody else, but a family is a socialist institution. Uh, it's a top-down institution as well. I don't, as I've said many times on the program, I don't sell the last cookie to the highest bidder among my children. <laughs> I make an estimate of who got a treat more recently. I might decide who looks hungriest. I might let them chat for a bit and gain knowledge about it. But that system works. It's it stood the test of time. The family, although it's uh, a, a little bit different today than it was. Uh, 50 years ago and certainly different than it was 5,000 years ago. But that stood the test of time. The, the kibbutz is, is – um, it's an attempt it, – what's fascinating – there are a lot of things that interest me about the book. But one of the things that's fascinating is the idea that in a way you're trying to expand the size of the family, the, the extended family concept, but not too far because those uh, monitoring devices of – Lack of privacy start to break down in a larger society. Uh, a lot of those incentives start to become more important as, and destructive of the kibbutz as it gets larger. So you extend the family. In fact, something close to the so-called Dunbar number of 150. So you might have 150 families. And after that, it gets quite difficult. But within that 150, you could imagine that there's something quite glorious about share your destiny with some people that you come to care about deeply or – Perhaps that you find uh, really annoying to be around all the time. You know, it's obviously quite quite complicated. But that that those those years of and to me, it seems like it was maybe forty years from the around the time of the establishment of the state of Israel in nineteen forty eight until the mid eighties or so, which we might call the golden years of, of the kibbutz movement. Uh, it, it captured the imagination of not everyone, but certainly about five percent of the popu- the Jewish population of Israel, and. As you say, it didn't just exist in isolation. They had a big impact on the country's development and on the military and on uh, other other aspects of society. And it's really a, a marvelous little laboratory experiment in how far you can push socialist ideals. Yes, yeah, thank, thank you. These are these are great points. It's exactly it's exactly this is exactly how the the way I thought about the book. It's uh, in a world of rising inequality today. When, say, in the U.S., I think the last number I've seen was that the top 1% owns maybe 35, 40% of the total wealth. It's natural that many people uh, start to think about whether and how we can create a more equal society and under what, what are the costs of doing so and what, uh, when, su- when such societies will succeed and, and, and when they will fail. And so I think about the kibbutz as exactly a case study of a society that went all the way to the other extreme of having everything shared fully equally, full equality. Uh, and exactly, it's exactly the, uh, and, and that shows us some of the conditions under which this can be successful. And I think you touch a few very important ones. So extended family, that's exactly right. One way to think about the kibbutz is, uh, extend, is an extended family. Uh, and this is, and to a large extent, just like you care about your family, you uh, you can create a system in which you care about your extended family, but then it cannot go too large. And so, for example, uh, there, were, there were discussions in the history of kibbutzim about whether to create, instead of many small kibbutzim, uh, 268 today, you know, with about with an average of 400 people. Whether it makes more sense to create like one big kibbutz, uh, mm-hmm. there are many there are many reasons why that will make sense. For example, there are returns to scale in the provision of uh, you know it's cheaper to provide laundry and food services in larger numbers, and so like it makes there are some reason and the, even the insurance aspects will be better where people will more will work in more occupations there are reasons to believe that one big kibbutz is successful but they always go back to no you know let's have many smaller kibbutzim because we for this to work people need to know each other people need to care about what each others are thinking and so uh, and that's not only the kibbutz there are other communes i think you know shakers for example used to split every time they reached a certain size mm-hmm. and so i think that it's the small nature is what allows them to uh, to work uh, like you describe like an extended family and 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 as you say even though uh, it's not they, they were successful in many ways but it's important to remember two things i think to be more uh, i don't want to create just a sense of how successful and uh, 
great and great they were. There are one is that even in the days, as you mentioned, even in the days that they were successful, at most kibbutz members accounted for seven percentage of the Jewish population in Israel. And so, at some level, you can think if you think about uh, uh, this, uh, this is like a limit to how many people were interested in a model like that, uh, even when it is successful. Uh, at some level, at some level, the way I think about the kibbutz exper- experiment, if you want, is that if people were given the choice of where to live, uh, and whether they want to live in an egalitarian society or whether they want to live in a less egalitarian society, who would choose the egalitarian option? And usually it's very hard to know. For example, if you take former communist countries, they are not very useful because people could not vote against socialism and they could not exit at will. But the kibbutz provides you this experiment. And so 7% is like as, as most as people would like to to join there. Uh, and the other thing is that there is in the background, and we didn't talk about it, but I think it's important, is that yes, they were successful, but at the same time, they did always get governmental support oh yeah thank you and so and so it's not like the, they did oh you know there was this ex- implicit contract between the kibbutzim and the jewish agencies before the creation of israel, of the state of israel and the governments of israel afterward that whereby kibbutzim contribute to nation buildings but in return they get land and they get uh, uh, subsidies in uh, water subsidies and uh, and uh, and and other ways in which they get like tax breaks uh, and and other ways and so governmental support uh, also has always been important and cynic, cynical people always would say well you know it was successful as long as governmental support was high uh, i don't think it tells the whole story but it's definitely part of the story and so you say by the way you say as a proportion of the jewish population the the kibbutzim did typically were not arab uh, citizens of Israel or Arab residents, they were just, these were Jewish, for whatever reason, Jewish settlers before the state was uh, established in 1948. And I, I, I don't know if you mentioned in the book, but uh, uh, were they typically Ashkenazim, uh, that is Jews from Europe rather than Jews from the Arab world, Sephardim? Yep, I did. I talk about this uh, in the book. The, this is, uh, it, it's very interesting because uh, when you think about one of the things that, uh, to me, one of the general lessons of the kibbutz, if you want, uh, is that uh, homogeneity is important. Yeah. So the founders of kibbutzim were, as you said, they were all Jewish. Not only they were all Jewish, but they were mostly, if not entirely, Ashkenazi Jews of people who came from Eastern Europe. Uh, and uh, they, uh, and so at some level, yes, they created this society, the, the, uh, a socialist community, but they were not very uh, uh, inclusive of uh, Arabs and other Jews. In fact, they, uh, in the 1950s, when uh, Israel, when more people started to come from Middle Eastern countries to Israel, uh, and they they lived in like a transitional camps around Kibbutzim, and the Prime Minister at the time, Ben Gurion, asked them. Uh, to what ex- you know whether they can uh, welcome some of these uh, people to uh, to work with them and to uh, the dining halls and and you know you know what they report they report that they were very welcome on the kibbutz fields but not very much in the dining hall mm-hmm. and so like uh, and so the idea is that uh, uh, this is uh, uh, they were not very inclusive in some sense they were very, uh, they were they, they the arab you know the zionist and socialist ideology oftentimes clashed with each other. So, for example, uh, from socialist perspective, the Arab is a fellow workers, but from Zionist perspective, it is sometimes the enemy, and they did not, uh, uh, and they did not uh, uh, accept Arabs to be members, of course. And so, it's, I think the broader lesson here is that uh, it's easier, it, the, one of the reasons why it's so challenging to create egalitarian society is that uh, it's a, uh, when people are homogeneous, in the case of the kibbutz members, Ashkenazi Jews, it's easier to agree on, uh, it, it's easier to have shared preferences, it's easier to, th- and to agree on equality, it's easier to see how you could be in somebody else's shoes and if something goes wrong with him, something can go wrong with you, uh, than it is when people are coming from very different ethnic, uh, uh, social, uh, and professional backgrounds. And so at some level, if you think about it, it's easier to understand why in Norway and Sweden, where the population arguably is more homogeneous, it's easier to sustain a welfare state than it Large. is in the United States. Yeah. Uh, yeah, than it is in the United States, for example. That's a great, it's a great point. I'm going to add another type of homogeneity I think is really important. And you, you talk about it in the book and I want you to elaborate on it, which is 
when when the state of Israel was established in in 1948, when Jews were arriving uh, before that, uh, it, it was a very poor country and it was a very undeveloped country. And the people who came came out of religious passion or nationhood passion, and they came to try to create something. And there was an unbelievable idealism in those days, in the 1940s and 50s in Israel. And it was primarily an agricultural place. So there weren't a lot of choices in ways to express yourself outside of farming and services, of course. But as Israel has become by the 1990s, perhaps the premier high-tech uh, innovative country in the world per capita, uh, the the idea of staying on the farm is radically less appealing. And so if Israel had stayed a poor agricultural economy, I think where the options were relatively homogeneous for the members of the society, I think the kibbutz would have stayed closer to seven or 10, could have risen even conceivably, right? But to today's world, really tough. Exactly right. So, so the... At first, when Israel and, and Israel, not not only uh, what you mentioned, but also Israel was a relatively egalitarian society at first, and so yes, it is maybe easier to understand why uh, when people came to a country full of uncertainty, uh, th- full of ideology, uh, they and and the outside option of members were not that great. Uh, a kibbutz is is something that is uh, uh, attractive, uh, and it is a uh, but once. Uh, uh, Kibbutz uh, once once returns to skills increase in Israel and with the height as you mentioned with the high tech boom of Israel in the 1990s now very skilled kibbutz members have great outside options it's it's uh, they, they might be lured by into the city much more than they were before and so at some level these changes in the uh, surrounding of the kibbutz in the in Israel as a whole uh, made the living in the kibbutz less attractive the part of the uh, that is maybe be the most difficult uh, to uh, that is most impressive in kibbutz survival to me is not the very beginning uh, and not the inevitable if you want uh, shift away from equal sharing once the returns to skill increase so much in the rest of Israel but it's those years where do uh, you see by the 70s it's not the case that most of what kibbutzim were doing is agriculture they have the each of them had if each of them at least has one successful factory, and they have uh, they, are, they have large presence in industry. They produce more than their share of the uh, of the of the products uh, in in industry and rubber and uh, plastic. They have uh, uh, and at the same time they are no longer as homogeneous as they used to be before. This is now second and third generation, and you know, like by the second and third generation, ideology uh, wasn't as strong as the founding generation, and yet. Uh, kibbutzim uh, at that point were still based on full equal sharing. Many of them were still doing quite well. It is that period that is uh, uh, that is interesting. Uh, and one of the things that uh, I find that, that uh, helped them in this period is, you see, being being rich is helpful. <laughs> and so if you become, uh, when the kibbutz is rich, for example, then you can imagine why even if people are very talented and they can earn more outside, why they might be tempted to stay? Because the average is good enough and all the swimming pool and the dining hall and it's a great place to raise kids. Uh, There are reasons why uh, staying uh, is attractive even for talented people uh, once the, uh, even though the kibbutz, you can uh, perhaps have uh, your outside option is is relatively high. but uh, it is exactly uh, so. If you can think about it, like think about Norway, for example, being rich is helpful, maybe to maintain the, uh, if to the extent that the kibbutzes are all uh, instructive for some, you know, for for other societies. If you think about Norway, uh, it's easier to sustain a, a big welfare state and egalitarian when you're rich enough. But in the kibbutz, once uh, there was a financial crisis that hit them. And once some kibbutzim had to reduce their living standards, you can see that poor kibbutzim are the first to shift away from equal sharing. And so uh, it raises the question of like, uh, uh, to what extent being rich is helpful in maintaining the the equality? Yeah, I, I want to talk about a, a related point, which is that, you know, we're talking about the incentives that if you could leave the kibbutz and go to the city, you might make a lot more money. 
I, I, there's also a non-monetary aspect to it that you don't stress much in the book, but I think it's 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 a big part of it also, which is what I think of as the opportunity to to flourish, to thrive, to apply your your skills in creative and satisfying ways. And again, speaking about my own uh, short experience on kibbutz, which was my only agricultural experience of my life, by the way, you know, I found picking peaches uh, to be remarkably boring. Uh, there was a box factory, if I remember correctly, uh, that I could have worked at, but there wasn't a lot of economics instruction. <laughs> so if I wanted yeah. to be an economist, I would have to leave the kibbutz. So if your skill set doesn't lend itself to what I would call, you know, aspects of manual labor or certain limited types of innovation, you point out there's some innovations in agriculture that the kibbutzim have led, and that's you know that's very that's very nice. But if that's not your thing, you're kind of out of luck. And the other benefits of the kibbutz, the raising children in nice ways, and the egalitarian part of it, if that appeals to you, is what you're left with. And I so I want to. I like react to that. Then I'll ask you a question about about education. Yes, I talk about it in the book a little bit. It's it's uh, you're absolutely right. One of the things that uh, uh, might be troubling about living in the kibbutz, and one of the reasons why my mom left, for example, is exactly that. It's that. Uh, she felt that individualism was discouraged, and you are uh, encouraged to conform to the to the normal. Like, you know, there is a saying that uh, the kibbutz education system is kind of like a, it's kind of like the loan. When it is below the average, they would pull you up, and when it's above, they will push you down. And so, in this sense, uh, there is and, and and you know, picking oranges is not something that is appealing to everybody. However, I would say that uh, Israel, the kibbutzim, in recent years, and even like. Uh, are not exactly like you remember them from your sure. visit. No, they've changed. So it's not they, they are and and but even even more more than just shi- before the shift away from equal sharing, there is a substantial. Uh, there is subst- it used to be that all members work inside the kibbutz, and it was useful in uh, for for you know like uh, from an economic perspective, it's a useful lock-in device. You don't know what your outside option is and so on. But hmm. they realized that this also discourage individualism and that some people just leave. Because they think that they cannot, uh, uh, they, they, you know, you want to be an economic professor, then uh, and if they wouldn't let you, maybe you will leave. And uh, in, and indeed, the academia and Heidek is full of former kibbutz uh, members. But at some point, uh, uh, m- many members, uh, it's no longer the case that everybody, all members work inside the kibbutz. There is a substantial number. Right now, it's about 20, 25 percent. Of people working outside of their kibbutz, they they would be, and so in the times before when the, it was still equal sharing, it would be that the member would work outside the kibbutz. Say you're a professor in the Hebrew University, and then you bring your salary to the kibbutz, and then it is shared equally among members. But you can uh, work outside the kibbutz. What it is true is that once you, uh, kibbutzim started to let people work outside the kibbutz, uh, now they are also more likely to leave. So kibbutzim always had this. Uh, uh, tough trade-off to make between, on the one hand, as employers, they wanted people to be skilled on the one hand, but they also want to keep them in on the other hand. And as extended family, you want your son to go to study whatever they want, not just what you tell them to. And so uh, they did, uh, over time, become more, uh, allowed more individual freedom in the choice of what to work in and what to do. Um, it's not exactly like the early days when you when people would all pick oranges. Yeah, well, I'm going to I'm going to critique my view for a second, which is that my son is currently in Israel on a gap year program. Oh, is and, he? And he spent some time this week uh, on break and was visiting a farm. And he said to me, he said, "You know, maybe I'll work on a farm for a year." And and <laughs> that's of course he's not alone. There there I know many uh, children of my of our friends who as now teenagers or uh, young adults want to do something agricultural, either out of the, the emotional returns and experience of, of being close to where you make your, you produce food or because they think they want to do it in a more sustainable way. So I don't want to over – I don't want to under-romanticize uh, agricultural life because I think there is uh, – there always are going to be people who find that that lifestyle appealing. And again, we're talking about a, a small group. But what what I want to turn to now is is the idea of inculcation of of ideology and the educational uh, role in the kibbutz. And one way to think about the uh, changes that took place over the last twenty five years is that the educational system could not 
convince the children and grandchildren of the original original kibbutzniks, the founders of the kibbutz movement, uh, to find it appealing. And, and I want to describe it in a way that you describe it in the book, which I think is really powerful, which is when, when you when you stay in a kibbutz or when you go out and work outside the kibbutz but keep your earnings within the kibbutz, you're – you are voluntarily choosing a 100% tax rate. You are turning everything over to the to the not to the state, but to the organization that you've chosen to to belong to. And uh, of course, you're also the beneficiary of the anything that the other people bring in. And you can think of when I was reading your book, I was thinking of sort of two ideological appeals there, two educational things that you'd tell your children if you wanted them to stay. One would be the, the insurance aspect of it that you mentioned. If things go bad, if you get disabled, if you become poor, if your job becomes less profitable than it was and pays less, you'll be taken care of. That's a nice. And you'll have the opportunity to take care of others, and you'll be in this shared enterprise. The second part, this idea that we're all equal as human beings, there's something deeply appealing about that. And you know, Hayek talks about it in The Fatal Conceit. He says, we have this natural impulse to take the structures of the family, which are held together by love, and extend them into the larger society. He says that's the road to, to tyranny. And if we take the <laughs> what, what he calls the extended order of the macrocosm, the market, and bring that into the family, we destroy the family. And the, to me, the, the beauty of the kibbutz intellectually and philosophically is that it, it recognized that. They were, they were in a state where – meaning Israel – where there was a huge socialist uh, philosophical – bent already, but they wanted to do it in a way that, that was less ambitious, and they still failed and, and, and to some extent. And the, to me, the question is they could not inculcate in their children and grandchildren a romance uh, that would help overcome the incentives that make it challenging. In other words, you know, you can incentives can be very powerful, but if you care deeply about the ideals of the kibbutz, you'll be happy. To turn yourself, your income over to the to the com, to the communal well-being of the of the group, but if you don't have that, it's hell. And obviously, the Soviet system failed utterly. We're currently talking about in the first circle and Solzhenitsyn, and uh, for those who who've been reading that book as part of our book club, I mean that ideal of a new human being totally failed. But it seems that it even struggled to this modest extended family model of 100 to 200 families in, in this Israeli setting. And, and they had total control over the education of these kids. They had limited understanding of what was going on outside, and yet they still struggled to, to make it appealing for, each gener- for those future generations. So there are many things you're right about. Uh, I think you, you're right that it's a – the, one of the reasons why it has been so appealing to members and to and, and why it got so much attention in Israel, in the world, is that there is something about us humans that do want to uh, care about other people and find uh, no poverty and uh, and caring about others very appealing. It's the practical aspects of it that are dif- uh, that are difficult. But the idea mm-hmm. of having uh, of caring about others. So I just give you an example. You know my you know my grandmother. Over the last seven years of her life, she had a uh, Alzheimer, and she died with the kind of care and compassion that money can't buy. And uh, and and this is something that uh, is uh, it was amazing the way that uh, she was treated uh, in the kibbutz. And you know there are many reasons for it. One is that uh, it's all about caring about others and so on. The other one is more economics a little uh, economics a little bit. If you think about uh, uh, equal sharing, imagine that you are a person that is uh, that has the tendency to want to do something that is very uh, to care about others. Say to become a nurse or become a teacher. But you're also very talented. So maybe in the city you will tell your well, you know, becoming a derivative trader will be much more beneficial for me uh, financially, even though I really want to be a nurse or a teacher. But in the kibbutz, uh, being a nurse or a teacher does not have negative financial consequence. So it attracts people that are very good to do this kind of jobs. And uh, and I would say that uh, a lot of the uh, education, the, the, the other thing I would say that is that uh, while you are very right, that uh, and I discuss it in the book, that uh, the, the kibbutz education system, despite trying, was not able to uh, instill the same idea, uh, strong idealism uh, 
as the first generation to the second and third generation, and definitely ideology decline. And uh, and indeed, this was one of the reasons why kibbutzim eventually shifted away from equal sharing. I would though say that I, you know, you mentioned the word they failed. I wouldn't call it that way. So to me, it depends on how you define a kibbutz. If you define a kibbutz as a society in which community in which everything is shared equally then yes, maybe to a large extent they fail and only 20% of them are still based on full equal sharing, but the vast majority shifted away from equal sharing. However, even kibbutzim that shifted away from equal sharing, they are still based on a much more equality than society around them, than a, than a random neighborhood in Israel. And, yep. and mutual aid and assistance and caring about others and a, and, and a sense of community is still very strong in kibbutzim. And so even reformed kibbutzim are nice communities where people care about uh, each, uh, where mutual aid is a, is a building block. The other, the other reaction I would have is that you're also right about, it's, it's almost like you think about it in a more philosophical way than, uh, you think, so you mentioned the Soviet, yes? Yeah? So it's not surprising that when you try to do this on a very large scale, and you want to, on the, even if you have good intentions and you want to have equality because it's the right thing to do and because it's great insurance and whatever, because of all these incentive problems, you, you kind of need to find ways to solve the incentive problems. And so uh, one way to solve them is, you know, if you live in a Russian kolkhoz, if you try to exit, they kill you. Well, that's a great incentive to never leave, uh, but it's not very interesting. And so it's not surprising that... Uh, uh, Often places that try to be like socialists are like uh, totalitarian and they, they put ma- big restrictions on uh, the ability of people to move and on how much media and information and knowledge they get from the outside world. What's nice about the kibbutzim is that they, uh, they try to do it without such measures, but as you pointed out, some byproducts are, you know, there is not much privacy and uh, it can be a hell because you have, uh, it's, uh, it does not encourage individual freedom of choice. Uh, and so uh, it's, th- these will, uh, it points to the cost that you have to somehow solve the incentive problems. Uh, and if you want to do it in a voluntary way, you have to construct mechanisms that will deal with these problems. And sometimes they are ones that most of us don't like, you know, say, say lack of privacy. And that's why, uh, it's only been 7% of the uh, Israeli population, and it can only be found in Israel. Although, by the way, if you are me, you risk seeing kibbutzim everywhere. You know, I, <laughs> while you don't see them exactly as they are, to me, every time you see a, a, a revenue-sharing agreement, even if it's professional partnerships or village economies sure. in developing countries uh, or the economic departments, uh, or uh, you, you see elements of, uh, of, uh, of kibbutzim. <laughs> Yeah, I want I want to come back to something you said. That I thought was was very provocative about uh, if you can be a derivatives trader, that that you know that raises the cost of being a nurse or a teacher if you live in the, say Tel Aviv. But on the kibbutz, it's not such a big it's not such a big difference. So the monetary aspect, the financial aspect, gets taken out. The other part I think that's interesting, and I love your reaction to this, is the status part. So we don't spend enough time, I think, talking in economics yeah. about status and and some of the other non-monetary aspects of of life and and work experience. So if you become a derivatives trader, assuming you're a successful one, and you get a fancy car and you live in a fancy house and people look up to you, they envy you perhaps, and you feel special and you feel important. And I've always said that having spent a good chunk of my life as a teacher, uh, I always, I always think I've, I've been very blessed to be able to do that. It, and when I started doing it, it, it was very expensive. <laughs> I gave up <laughs> a lot of income in 1980 to be a teacher, uh, less so now, although I'm not literally a teacher anymore. But with the rest of my career, the amount, the cost of me staying as a teacher than rather, say, an industrial economist or a financial economist in the financial sector got smaller over time. But I always enjoyed the non-monetary aspect of it. But, but, what's the, but, but it happens to be the case – that college professors in the United States get a lot of honor and they get a lot of prestige and it's it's considered a it's considered somewhat special. Maybe I'm deluding myself. You can I'm sure my listeners will will correct me, but I, I think school teacher and and sometimes nurse doesn't quite get that status and uh, high school teacher say and, and nursing doesn't get the status. And I think there's something really interesting about the ability, again limited, of the kibbutz to instill 
respect across different occupations unrelated to the monetary compensation. Exactly. So, so the, the status, first of all, I would start by saying it's a shame that uh, teachers and nurses don't get that status because I think they should. Uh, they have some of the most uh, important work that, uh, that we have today. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, yes, many of us do a lot of things for, non for the non-monetary returns aspect. And in some sense, one way in which kibbutzim were successful is in exactly, uh, make, uh, it's a higher status to be a uh, a nurse that uh, is so smart that you knew that she could have been a derivative <laughs> trader but chose to be a nurse instead, how amazing is that? Yeah. As opposed to just uh, uh, go for uh, something that uh, is uh, really only mostly beneficial for you. So it's almost like uh, the way status works in the kibbutz is interesting. It's almost like uh, uh, being a big fish in a small pond. People who, are, who have leadership skills are really highly appreciated. And in part, this is because you know that they can do other things, but they still chose to stay there and to contribute their time and their salary uh, to the others. In fact, as Kibbutzim shifted away from equal sharing, uh, some of that uh, started to disappear because you're like, oh, of course, now you become, a, now you earn a lot of money, but I don't respect you as much because uh, mm -hmm. you mostly get to keep it rather than uh, share it with everybody else. So status is an interesting thing. Why do we have status, uh, such high status to, for derivative traders and not for nurses? It's, uh, uh, it's, it's not clear. Uh, uh, and in the kibbutz, it's kind of almost like the other way around. Although lately, since 2008, the derivative tr traders aren't doing so well either on the status right, right. front. It's important to, <laughs> as an example. Yeah, as a, to remember. But I want, I want to make an argument um, that for the economists who are listening, and I, th I think the non-economists will understand it, I hope understand it as well, so I loved your example. So you're capable of being uh, a financial and some kind of trader or investor, and you choose instead to do the less lucrative, uh, more, quote, caring profession. And, of course, some people in economics call that, quote, inefficient, meaning it doesn't maximize the financial size of the pie. And I just want to make the, the claim that, that that's a total misunderstanding uh, to me of the human enterprise. The goal of life is not to make the pie as big as possible. It matters. It matters. Your standard of living matters, but it's not the only thing. And I think a lot about one of the great minds, two of the greatest minds of all time, which would be Gauss and Newton. Gauss spent the last years of his life as a surveyor. Uh, his notebooks, which I think the notebook he left, I think it had 16 pages. It was it became one of the most fertile and and incredible achievements of, you know, the mathematicians studied for a long, long time. Uh, he, he created the normal distribution, which is also the Gaussian distribution. He made incredible contributions to statistics and math. And at the end of his life, he wanted to be a surveyor. Newton, at the end of his life, wanted to try to figure out what the the celestial spheres, the music that they made when the, when they rotated, which is the way he thought of planetary orbits. He was a he was a mystic. Uh, and a lot of people say, oh, that was so, here are these two great talents. They were so inefficient. They should have been doing X, Y, or Z. And the answer to me to that is, well, that's not all that matters. It's really not all that matters at all. And I, and I think the, I don't want to go the other way and say that, you know, that Steve Jobs, just because he's rich, didn't accomplish much, or Jeff Bezos or others. I think at the same time, we often underestimate the human contribution that we do measure in financial terms that people make. LeBron James uh, is very wealthy because he makes a lot of people happy. And I don't want to understate the value of that, his contribution to making the world a better place. A at the same time, there's something really beautiful about the care your mother received. And I don't want to say that you can't put a price on it, but I'm close to saying that. Yes. Yeah, so, I so mean, you, your grandmother. You're, you're yeah, you're right. You're right that uh, there is a lot more than just maximizing the, the total pie. But I would say that there are a couple of things that I learned, at least from from uh, thinking about kibbutzim for a long time. And one of them is that uh, you, you know I started this whole project by just writing a series of paper of uh, of papers of like. Do, maybe maybe economic incentives stop at the kibbutz gate. So maybe is there brain drain? Is there adverse selection? Is there free riding? Is there lack of investment in human capital and so on? And the answer, overall answer that I get is that basically economic incentives matter. So definitely the more educated and skilled were more likely to leave and people with, uh, who earned less were more likely to seek to enter a kibbutz and so on. But, but at some level, those 
negative economic incentives were not nearly as devastating as economic theory would suggest. Now, so, exactly. big parts of it is because the kibbutzim designed exactly social incentives to deal with them. But there are other things, for example, think about the about education. So kibbutz members were never less educated than the population as a whole, even in the period where uh, there was full equal sharing. So the idea that, for example, people study hard uh, because of the financial because of the financial returns to their investment is maybe the kibbutz maybe would suggest that it's overstated. People studied were not less educated than the population as a whole, even in the period of uh, of full equal sharing. Of course, they had different education. Of course, maybe fewer of them went to more advanced degrees and more of them did, uh, but at the same time, more of them had basic education. So there are certain aspects in which incentives matter, but it's not all about uh, economic incentives. But I would make an, like another point I would make, and that's something that, again, this is like more speculation than it is uh, 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 based on, you know, like data. But if you think, Im imagine, it's not even clear 100% to me that uh, uh, that when you want, even if you focus on maximizing the total pie, think about the following aspect of the kibbutz, the one we talked about with the nurse that is getting more. So if imagine that you think that some occupations have higher social values than others. So imagine that you convince yourself that, uh, that uh, somehow uh, uh, nurses and teachers have higher social values than uh, derivative traders. And I, by the way, I don't mean to pick on derivative <laughs> traders at all. It's just like uh, the thing that comes in mind. Let's call, <laughs> them, uh, let's call them computer programmers. No, God, no. <laughs> and, and, and so, and if that's the case, and, and an egalitarian system uh, will encourage people to study more, uh, to go more for occupations with higher social value uh, returns, but lower private returns, then even the the total pie is high. Now, I'm not sure. I, I know I, I'm, you know, didn't think about this long enough. I think there is a recent paper by by Glenn Weil trying to formalize. I think that point, but uh, it could be that uh, that. Uh, uh, it, it could. There, I can imagine a world in which uh, uh, encouraging you to study something with high social value but low uh, low private value actually increase the size of the pie. Oh, and we, we used to always say properly defined. So if you yeah. think that the pie, whatever that means, is just the pile of stuff, the goods and services, obviously that isn't what we want to make as big as possible. We want to make human satisfaction, human uh, – Flourishing human experience is what matters, and so if you define the you know the love that your grandmother received as important, which of course it is, when she had Alzheimer's, that counts. We can't measure it; it doesn't get a monetary price on it. It could if she had been hired out to a really expensive nurse, but as you point out, a lot of times the nurse that does the best job isn't the one that's paid the most. So that's important. It is important. The thing is about the thing is that uh, we also have to think practically about. Uh, you know, we all would like to live in a world where everybody is everybody is rich and everybody is uh, uh, equal and so on. But uh, we also so the book I think points to on the one hand the beauty and the things that are good about equal sharing, and uh, but at the same time trying to be practical about uh, some of the costs that uh, come along the way by trying to make sure that incentive problems are being solved. Uh, and those, yeah. those incentive problems, by the way, reminded me a lot. I just want to mention this for listeners who might have who might uh, remember this. It, very similar to the work of Eleanor Ostrom. You know, Eleanor Ostrom looked at the tragedy of the commons, where people had said, "Well, if you have a commons, it's going to be overgrazed. Uh, if you have a fishing ground that doesn't have ownership, it's going to be overused." And what she showed is that in small societies, very similar to kibbutzim. There was monitoring devices that these people – that the people involved in this created to, to reduce the natural incentives of, of des despoiling and, and overfishing and overgrazing that would be there in the apps. You know, so I, I think the other aspect of the books, which I really like and of your book, is that it's a, it's a textbook example of what's wrong with textbooks. <laughs> you know, the textbook <laughs> says this can't exist. They'll, they can't solve this. The incentives will – well, they all – whether they knew it or not, they evolved such that they figured out ways to reduce the – power of those incentives. Yes, and you know, the, the, it's interesting that you mentioned common property. This is one thing that uh, usually communal property and lack of private property is something that is associated with bad stuff. In, yeah. uh, interestingly, for the kibbutz, this turned out to be useful because it solved the problem of, uh, it, crea it created, it served as a bond that made it 
costly for people to exit. At some level, uh, that that is one aspect that uh, uh, you can think of as, if you want cost or of uh, having a, if you want to really maintain a society that is fully equal sharing as the kibbutz, common property was very important there because like uh, you, the fact that you couldn't take it with you once you exit, uh, allowed the kibbutz to maintain a higher degree of equality without experience massive brain drain of uh, the most talented members because it helped uh, as a locking device. But it is exa- another example, like lack of privacy. Uh, so, so think. Of, so, imagine the, the founders of the kibbutz. Okay, imagine you come to the kibbutz. You really want to have equality. You think it's fabulous, uh, but you worry that eventually people might. Uh, you, you're now young, and everybody shares similar prospects. But you know that at some point, people, some people will turn out to be super talented and productive, and they might want to leave because they have, will have increased incentive to uh, move to the city and earn a premium for their ability and efforts. What do you do? You say, why don't we cancel all private property? Everything we'll give everything we have to the collective. And when we exit, we can take it with us. You know, guess what happens now when, when people realize they have, uh, they are talented and they want to leave. Well, but at that point they can take their, uh, uh, there is no private property. They There's don't no have savings. any savings. They, yeah. they, they have no savings. They have nothing. So if they leave, they can take only their brain with them, but they can take their share of the kibbutz. And that makes exit costly and allow kibbutzim to commit to a higher degree of equality without losing the most productive individual. So somehow lack of private property as a bond, as a bond that allow a higher degree of equality uh, without brain drain is something that, uh, but again, just like lack of privacy is something that uh, many people maybe find too costly, uh, is too costly in order to maintain a high degree of equality. My guest today has been Ron Abramitsky. His book is The Mystery of the Kibbutz. Ron, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks a lot for having me, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>